0: Last Sunday, we launched our study of this little book, and I was able to share from the heart why I believe that the Lord was leading me to preach this book. And we answered some proposed questions related to the book itself and determined together that Titus provides an important foundation for our church. And to be more specific, it provides a foundation for us to be spiritually healthy and to grow as a church. We gained a basic understanding of the background and a little bit about the culture that surrounded the believers on the island of Crete. The Cretan culture was strongly influenced by Greek mythology, and we even mentioned a little bit about uh, Zeus and the legacy of him being born there. And Cretans had a reputation for being liars and deceptive and gluttonous and lazy at the same time. And the churches were being strongly impacted by this uh, surrounding influence on the island. And it's a lesson and a point of application for us. It really serves as a warning that we also right, have to be uh, cautious of the influences of our culture that surround the church as well. What influence is our culture having on our church today? And what instruction would God have us cling to so as not to be influenced by that which is outside of the church. And this ultimately led us to the purpose for which Paul had written to Titus and the churches on the island. God used Paul to exhort and instruct him to establish proper order and health in the church and to confront the influence of false teachers. By the way, this is a uh, a, a practical way to look into the epistles and really gain a sense by uh, what was going on within the climate of the churches. You can tell uh, what was happening by the medicine that is prescribed. Okay, uh, Medical professionals that are here in the church will vouch for this. When somebody comes into their office, they share what? They share symptoms of what's going on. And they explain and um, are saying, you know, I'm, a little bit of this is going on, a little bit of that's going on, and this helps medical uh, staff and personnel to assess the situation and leads uh, them to provide the instruction that's going to serve them the best. And so God used the Apostle Paul to let them know that they were in great need of order and discipline, and as a result, God prescribed certain instructions for their spiritual health, and growth. And I named our study Titus Together because I want us to be ready for how this little book is going to impact us as a church. And there is a play on words, and I hope that you guys are ready. Are you ready? Are you guys ready to study Titus? Men, did you wake up this morning and put on your suit and Titus? <laughs> is everybody in the room ready to study the Titus little book in the Bible? <laughs> okay, you know what you got when you got me. Okay, I am cheesy like that. But uh, in all seriousness, I believe that this study is going to help us really at a micro level as a church to uh, focus on that which is important uh, for our church family. And at a micro level, a proper understanding and obedience to Titus should allow the church at large to strive together to resist the negative cultural influences that we are all surrounded by. Let's go ahead and pray and just ask God to bless us with a great time in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before we enter into Your Word. And we ask that You would provide for us clarity and understanding. That through Your illumination, that we would see things that maybe we haven't seen before. That we would see the depths of Your Word and that we would um, apply it and be able to grow in it. And your word reminds us that it is the doer of the word, not just the hearer of the word, who is blessed. And help us, Father, as we look to you as our Lord, as our master, to be doers of the word. Help us to actively engage you. Help us to resist our apathy and indifference. And as your word even shares a a church that does not please you is a church that is lukewarm. And far be it from us, Father, that we would ever be lukewarm as believers. We want to be effective for ministry. We want to be effective for your name's sake, And so we pray that you'll help us to grow in our witness as a church. And we know that your name will be magnified in this and through this. And we look forward to seeing how you answer this prayer, in our time together. We give you praise. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, if you're not in Titus already, go ahead and turn there. And Titus, of course, hides behind First and Second Timothy. And if you blink, you can possibly miss it. So we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. And this is what it says, starting in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested His word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. And this is the Apostle Paul's salutation or greeting. And unlike a traditional letter that we might initiate by saying, dear so-and-so, salutations in the New Testament really function uh, much more like the subject line does in our current email today. An email... Contains a subject line, and sometimes that allows you to expand a little bit more on the letter, and it it reflects to the recipient uh, a general greeting, but it also lets them know what it's going to be about. And so, in a similar fashion, we see this with salutations and greetings in the New Testament epistles. In Greek letters in the New Testament area, the writer would identify himself, then he would identify the person to whom he was writing and then he would share a basic greeting. How many epistles did the Apostle Paul write? Everyone remember from last week? You know what? 13, right? There was 13 of them, and this week my study um, led me to uh, consider what his salutations or his greetings look like uh, throughout those 13 epistles, and I went and cut and pasted them all into a single document so that I could see them in chronological order to see if there was anything that distinguished them. And so if you're semi-nerdy like me, a a seminary student would would like to see this and and how this lines up, or if you're semi-nerdy and just things like this intrigue you and you want to know, you can email me. I'll, I'll pass the document along to you. What I discovered is that the majority of Pauline Letters had a general and consistent salutation that looked like this. It would say something to the effect, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at blank. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And that was true for First and Second Thessalonians. It was true for the Ephesians and the Colossians as well as the Philippians. What did, uh, what did catch my attention, however, was that the letters which were more focused on correction had longer salutations. And I thought that was interesting. For example, 1 Corinthians, which is known uh, to be a letter of correction, has a longer salutation and it's purposed with a, a, a statement. And this is what The salutation in 1 Corinthians says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God Our Father, And so the the Holy Spirit led Paul to include this blanket statement. Why? Because he was just about to unpack for them um, and address all these issues of immorality, right? That were leaking into the church. And so in his salutation, he reminds them to be sanctified. That you're set apart. That it's, right here, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there was a purpose with it. He does the same thing when he instructed the the church in Galatia and also in Romans when he's uh, writing extended greetings to them to emphasize the accuracy of the gospel. His longest greeting is actually seven verses in uh, the book of Romans and, and Paul's purpose, of course, to writing them was to make sure that they had a firm grasp on justification through faith. He wanted to make sure that they knew what that looked like. And so, longer salutations reflect the heartbeat and purpose behind the letters and aren't necessarily reflective of the length of the letter in which was written. After all, the second longest salutation is found in our book today, Titus, which is only three chapters long. And the title is in your bulletin, and the messenger and the motive is, uh, for Titus is what we're going to look at. And this salutation is packed full of theological truths, and we'll be blessed to unpack them very slowly this week and next. And we're going to study the following components of this extended greeting, which again is in your bulletin. Number one, we're going to look at the messenger in verse 1a. Secondly, we're going to look at the motive in verse 1b, which goes all the way through verse 3. And we'll actually get to that next week. Then we'll also talk about the man or the recipient in verse 4. But let's get started with the messenger. And verse 1 begins by uh, Paul sharing this and being led by the Spirit to write this, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The first Greek word we encounter here is paulos. And I don't know if you could possibly misinterpret that, uh, as being uh, rendered something else in English besides Paul, for the first 1900 plus years of the church age, anyone with an elementary education would be able to even look at the Greek and understand that it's Paul who's identifying himself. And sadly, there are now pr- uh, plenty of self promoting postmodern scholars who attempt to deny Pauline authorship of the pastoral epistles. They allegedly claim that. The pastoral epistles, due to some of the wording and some of the content and other factors, are now widely regarded as not written by Paul, but by someone who uh, wrote them after he died. And proponents for this claim assert that after examining the pastorals, they fail to find vocabulary in the same literary style, similar to Paul's unquestionably authentic letters. They also claim that the pastoral epistles fail to fit the situation of Paul's reconstructed biography. And if you were a seminary student at Princeton, for example, you would be taught that this is the truth. There would be many who would cling to and hold to this position. And what's sad is that you have to get a higher education to learn how to deny Pauline authorship, but anyone with a basic understanding can see just by looking at the text that Paul is indeed the author. And thankfully, there's plenty of New Testament uh, orthodox scholarship that refutes these pseudo-claims. For example, one of the biggest uh, critiques attempting to deny Paul as the author points to the large number of "hopox legomena, which if you're not familiar with that Greek phrase, hopox means only, legomenon means said or word said, so it means that these words are only said once within the written writings of, of the, the record that they're referring to. These unique words when compared to the rest of the Pauline corpus um, stand alone because they're not used anywhere else. What's interesting about that, and if we think about this a little bit, we talked about it uh, last week, is that Paul was addressing Churches primarily when he wrote, right? Ten out of the 13 letters which Paul uh, wrote were addressed to, to churches, okay? And then you have the pastoral epistles, um, or excuse me, nine out of uh, 13 were addressed to churches. And then you have the pastoral epistles and Philemon that were actually written to individuals, okay? So naturally, the wording, if you were writing to a church, I mean, this is just true for us today. If we were going to write a letter to the church, or if we were going to write a letter specifically to one person in the church, the wording is going to be slightly different, is it not? Yes, and, and that is certainly the case. And so um, we want to share that it's in the best interest to Trust that the Apostle Paul recorded the pastoral epistles because that is the standing and historic testimony of the church. And there's nothing spiritually beneficial by assuming that the authorship um, is someone outside of the Apostle Paul. Well, Paul continues after giving his name by identifying himself in two distinct ways. And I want us to take a closer look at these phrases. Zooming in on how Paul identifies himself isn't an attempt to over-personalize what Paul intends to establish with his identity and authority and relationship to the audience. Rather, it does provide us with an opportunity as believers to understand what Paul and his readers would have understood about what Paul was saying when he addressed them. And we need to see that. It can also help us understand how we identify ourselves and what we believe about our own identity in Christ. This was certainly true for Paul And the New Testament describes believers in many different ways, and we'll get a chance to see that in just a little bit. Paul begins by stating this. He is a bondslave of God. And if you have the ESV translation, it will say servant instead of bondslave. But the Greek word is doulos, and it's best translated slave, because that is what it literally means. And by the way, this phrase right here, doulos theos, is our first example of a hypoxlegomena. This is the only time in Paul's epistles that we see this phrase used. Nowhere else does he employ it. He does call himself a slave of Jesus Christ in Romans 1:1 and Philippians 1:1, but here he's led to refer to himself as a slave of God. And so, what is the significance of Paul being led by the Holy Spirit to describe himself as a slave and how would the churches and Titus okay even Titus himself and the, the the readers of this letter understand this expression that Paul employed and what lessons can we also draw from it we need to understand slavery during this time slavery the legal ownership of one person by another as property was deeply ingrained within the roman culture and we even see this in the prominent reference uh, throughout the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ even used talking about slaves. Matthew 18, right, he tells the, the parable of the unforgiving slave. And it was common for him to mention slaves. The expansion of the Roman Empire through many conquests often led to the enslavement of their captives. Even Roman citizens could be, uh, if they were guilty of breaking the law, could be sentenced to slavery as a form of punishment for their offenses. Entire families could be sold into slavery, and that's actually talked about in Matthew 18. Um, there's a reference to that very thing happening to um, the, the, the unforgiving slave until he would pay back what he owed. It was even permissible to sell yourself into slavery if you couldn't pay back a debt. If there was no way you, that, that you would be able to Uh, um, provide for the debt that you were responsible for, you could actually sell yourself in order to pay off that debt. Well, since children born to slaves also became slaves, this was like this unending production line of slavery, right? People who had children as slaves, those children became slaves, And so these generations guaranteed the growth of a large slave population. And by the time the New Testament uh, rolls around, it's estimated that 40 to 50% of the people within the Roman Empire were slaves. One out of every two people. Isn't that staggering to think about? One out of every two people were slaves. And ironically, the keeping of slaves was also practiced by the Jews as well as the Romans. And it was even uh, practiced by Christians. And we have an example of this in Paul's letter to Philemon, who owned Onesimus, right, as, as, a, as a slave. The life and condition of slaves seemed to have varied uh, enormously. Socially, slaves were given humane treatment, and the extreme abuse of, uh, or killing of slaves was prohibited by law. Uh, The welfare of slaves generally depended on the disposition of their masters, and in some cases, like for slaves who worked in the galley of a ship or who worked in the mines, their lives were absolutely terrible. And if you've seen the classic movie, Ben-Hur, Judea Ben-Hur, that provides a a glimpse of uh, those men who were down in the galleys of the ship rowing and just the abuse That was received. And even in the best circumstances, slaves had few legal rights. They could be beaten at the discretion of their master. They had virtually no autonomy, no ability to make decisions regarding their own lives or destinies. And in a Roman world that valued honor above all else, they occupied the bottom tier of the social pyramid. A slave was a person with no honor, a person who lived in shame. And so this is a big deal. When the Apostle Paul is addressing the, the church at Titus, when he says that he is a slave, this is a big deal. He's talking about a slave in the strictest sense. And what may come to us as a surprise is that this is the prevailing term that is used to describe New Testament believers. What's the most common expression when we make our identity with Christ that we use today? What do we say if somebody, when we talk about... The, um, who we are um, as believers we say i am a christian right yeah we that's how we identify ourselves but what was common in the new testament was for people to share that they were slaves to to say that you are a christian ironically it's only used three times in the scriptures twice in the book of acts and once in first peter and there are other new testament words used to describe believers like saints Citizens of heaven, ambassadors, friends of God, heirs of God and Christ, metaphors uh, like sheep, lights of the world, newborn babes, athletes, soldiers, and even branches. Yet the New Testament scriptures use one metaphor more than all of these, and it is the word doulos, slave. And instead of translating doulos as slave, the majority of Bible translations consistently substitute the word servant in its place. And the irony is that Greek, in the Greek there's at least half a dozen terms that can be used to translate the word servant. But the word doulos can only be translated slave. One of the most respected authorities in the meaning of Greek terms in scripture is called TDNT, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And it breaks down Greek terms. And according to TDNT, the word doulos is used exclusively, quote, either to describe the status of a slave or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. And one commentator shares this about the word doulos in TDNT. The emphasis is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which he has to perform whether he likes it or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will and the will of his owner. The term stresses the slave's dependence upon his Lord. He goes on to say, While it's true that the duties of a slave and servant may overlap to some degree, there's a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired, slaves are owned. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, had no freedom. No autonomy or rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were considered property to the point that the eyes of the law they were regard in the eyes of the law they were regarded as things. Rather than persons. To be someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitation or argument. And so it's a fair question. Why do modern translations render it this way? If it's doulos, why does it not say doulos if that's unmistakable in the Greek language? And this is actually the premise of the entire book that Pastor John MacArthur wrote. Uh, in the book that's entitled Slave with the subtitle, The Hidden Truth About Your Identity in Christ. Many translations yield to the word servant or bond servant in an effort to soften the blow and minimize the negative association that slavery has in our modern culture. And MacArthur says that due to the stigmas, and this is a quote, due to the stigmas attached to slavery in Western society, translators have understandably wanted to avoid any association between biblical teaching and the slave trade of the British Empire and the American colonial era. For the average reader today, the word slave does not conjure up images of Greco-Roman society, but rather depicts an unjust system of oppression that, w- that was finally ended by parliamentary rule in England and by the Civil War in the United States. In order to avoid both potential confusion and negative imagery, modern translators have replace slave language with servant language. And so that's one explanation. He goes on and says that the word slave appears 124 times in the original text. It is correctly translated. How many times do you think that the word slave? So it's 124 times in the original text. What would you guess in the King James Version which has been uh, falsely uh, lifted as one of the the supreme translations and there's a whole controversy with that, right? How many times, and everyone that clings to that, this is such an argument against the King James only people. How many times is it translated slave? Out of 124 times? Once. Once. And MacArthur goes on to say that um, most of our modern translations only do slightly better. It almost seems like a conspiracy, is his quote. And I'm not yet, I haven't read the book Slave, but there are some foundational truths about biblical slavery that we need to understand. And I want to share a few of them so that we really process this doulos theos concept. And they should be listed in your notes. And we're going to be turning to a few different passages, so that's a warning to your, your thumbs and your fingers. Let's uh, get ready to to flip the pages. The first fundamental truth about biblical slavery is this. We are all slaves. Jesus, when rebuking the Pharisees in John 8.34, said that truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this gets spelled out for us even more in Romans chapter 6. If you want to turn to Romans 6, it, this is, uh, it's good to, to see this verse and the, the following verses, which we'll, we'll look at under the other points. Do you not know that if you present... This is verse 16 of Romans 6. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? God's word let us know, it lets us know that our obedience reflects who our master is. And we'll see this develop more in the letter and have already gained a sense of this. I believe that we have just with Titus because what, what is happening with the, the people on the island of Crete? They're worshiping this false, false god of Zeus who is historically known for being a liar Okay, in order to seduce mortal women. That was his intentions behind his lies and his deception. And then the people themselves also made up this rumor that his tomb exists somewhere on the island, which was completely made up. So what you have taking place is a lying God producing lying people. It was the nature of who they are. And we see this shared in Titus one twelve which we'll get to a little bit later in our study. But I wanted to share this illustration because it's so effective. Eskimos up in Alaska have a unique way in which they uh, hunt polar bears. And you, you may have heard this illustration before, but it's so fitting. They take a blade, a knife, and they dip it into the blood of an animal. And then they freeze it. And then... They take it out into the snow, and they pack the handle of the knife down into the snow so just that the blade is sticking up. And the blade is coated in blood, and so the the blade itself is dull, but the smell of that blood does what? It attracts the polar bear. And all of a sudden, a polar bear will find that blade, and it comes up, and it smells that blood, which is enticing, and it begins to lick it. One lick at a time, and then it tastes that blood, and it gets a taste for it. And it licks, and it licks, and it licks. And I think we all see where this is going, right? To the point where all of a sudden it licks the blood uh, so intently that it, the, the, the blade actually starts to, to poke through. And what happens is that the polar bear begins to slice its tongue One lick after each lick, and eventually the blood that it's tasting is its very own blood. It's drinking its own blood, and that's how it ends up dying, uh, hemorrhaging, really, and drinking um, all that blood in, and that's how the animal is killed, and so it is with sin. Initially, there might be something that appears deceptively appealing, but in the end, It always means death. And this is a great picture of being enslaved to sin. Right? And later on in the letter, Titus Paul shares this word describing the Cretan believers while including himself uh, before their conversions by saying in Titus 3.3, "...for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various evil passions and pleasures." passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. God used Paul to make sure that we understand that we were all slaves to sin at some time in our lives. And this leads us to our next fundamental truth about biblical slavery. We have no power to free ourselves from slavery. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll turn there. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions, and this is evil passions, of our flesh, carrying out the desires The wicked desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so this passage expands even more upon the slavery to sin. Spiritually, believers are dead in their fallen desires and fallen flesh, following the way of the world and really following the way of Satan. The very nature of which deserves the wrath of God. And this was true of all of us before God saved us and changed our hearts to live for Him. And when I think about the power, or lack of, I should say, to overcome our sin nature, it always makes me think about the story of the, the tortoise and the scorpion, or the turtle and the scorpion. And I don't know if I've shared this before, but it's such an incredible picture. In the center of an island on a river, A turtle and a scorpion inhabited inhabited the island and all of a sudden severe rains came and the island was going to be flooded and the scorpion realized quickly that he was going to drown and so the turtle goes to take off to swim to the bank on the other side of the river and the scorpion says hey um, can you give me a ride to the other side of the bank and the turtle says to the scorpion no way you're going to sting me, and then I'm going to die too. And the scorpion says, why would I do that? If I sting you, then we're both going to die because you're going to drown, and I'm going to drown as well. And so the tortoise thinks about it for a second, says to the scorpion, hop on. And so they're swimming, and they're going across the river, and they're going to safety over across to the other side, the bank of the river, When all of a sudden the scorpion lifts up his tail and stings the turtle right on his neck. You know what happens? He dies, and the turtle screams out and says, "Man, what are you doing? What are you doing?" And he asks, he said, "Now we're both gonna die." And the scorpion said, "I couldn't help it. It's in my nature." And that's the truth. That's the truth about us. We cannot help but sin. It is who we are. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners as we follow the prince of the power of the air of this world. We are sinners as we chase evil desires, right? And we have no power in and of ourselves to free ourselves. And this strikes at the core of who we are without Christ and our glorious need for the gospel, we need Christ to set us free from our sla- slavery. And this leads to our third fundamental truth about biblical sa- slavery. Our freedom from slavery was purchased by Christ's blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. If you want to flip there with me, you'll get to uh, see these verses. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It says this starting verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like the lamb without blemish or spot. And the word translated ransom literally means to liberate. It means to free someone by paying a ransom price. And certainly there were slaves who were freed uh, physically by being bought with precious gold and precious silver and other perishable things. But not us. Christians are bought with something so much further behind, beyond our comprehension. We were bought with the precious blood of the God of this universe. The Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of Christ functions in a unique way for the believer. It atones for, which means that it covers our sin. And it also, according to 1 Peter 1.1, serves as a ransom or a payment for our slavery to sin. Sin was our master. It consumed our very nature, our desires, and our service. And then that all changed when we came to faith and placed our trust completely in. In Christ, and the power of sin no longer is a master over us. We have new ownership through the blood of Christ. And this leads us to our fourth fundamental truth of biblical slavery we are now slaves to God. 1 Thessalonians, which is close to uh, Titus, so it'll be good to venture back that way. 1 Thessalonians 1 9. Why can't I find it? First Thessalonians one nine, uh, Paul is describing the Thessalonian believers. Verse nine of chapter one says, "For they, and this is a reference to the Macedonian and Achaean believers, themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned from turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God." And the verb uh, to serve is actually which is a, a cognate of, of, of dulos, right? So this is the verb form, which if we rendered the last portion of the, this verse again, it's literally saying, you turn to God from idols enslaved to the living and true God. And it's been aptly said that we have been saved from our sins and we have been slaved by grace. When we are saved by grace, we are slaved by grace and enabled to battle against the old deceptive master of sin in the power and strength of our new master. And frankly, our new master has a pretty good track record when it comes to battling against sin. And I love the way Romans 6:22 expresses this. Romans 6:22 says, "But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification." And the outcome, eternal life. The ESV renders it this way. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And the outcome in both of these verses is eternal life. And all God's people said, amen. Right? Right? And it also gives us the benefit or the fruit leading to our sanctification. And the Greek word translated sanctification here can also be translated holiness or dedication to the Lord. And this leads us to our fifth and final fundamental truth of biblical slavery. Our new slavery will have an impact on our life. When we are saved from sin and when we are slaved by grace, God works within us to sanctify us as his slaves of righteousness. And there's an impact that our new slavery has on our lives as he begins to work in us and through us. And what's ironic is the the slavery to God is freedom. It's freedom, right? No longer depends on us. It no longer works righteousness and, and God in his heartbeat and his mercy for those religious leaders, those Pharisees, was trying to get them to see it. You can be free. You can be free. You can be a slave of righteousness. His passion was for them. And we're freed from serving the idols of this world. As 1 Thessalonians 1.9 shared, we can serve God's plan and his purpose for our lives. And our bondage to sin, our bondage to serving ourself is lifted, and we're enabled to be slaves to the Savior and to follow Christ's example as the chief slave of all. And did I just call Jesus Christ a slave? I did. Because Philippians 2 calls him a slave. No, it's a familiar passage. I hope this message shapes our thinking a little more as we read it together this time in Philippians two five, which calls us to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos. Christ became a slave for us. And is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul would consider it a privilege to introduce himself humbly as a slave of God after all that he's previously written in the pastoral epistles, especially about the greatest example. And he wrote Philippians 2, 5 and following, the greatest example in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so much here. I, I, there is so much here, just even as it relates to um, being a doulos in the New Testament. So much freedom where Paul says that he, e- even h- using his liberty, that he becomes a slave to all men, right? To, when he's writing First Corinthians. Why? So that he might win, win some more. And then he t- to the Jews, he became a Jew. To those who were under the law, he became like he was under the law. He gives an explanation. To the weak, he became weak, right? There's something freeing. It's so it's so so practical. And I didn't want us to miss it. Well, we have to hustle now because we have to finish our first point. <laughs> the messenger. Okay. Paul also goes on after he describes himself as a dulas theas to describe himself in this way. He describes himself after this as an apostolos Jesus Christos which is an apostle of Jesus Christ and this opening greeting to Titus is anything but a customary hello Paul introduces himself first as a slave of God and then as apostle of Jesus Christ and so the first introduction and the first statement Uh, Being a doulos, theos, a slave of God, is to mark his humility, his humble service, his willingness to follow the example of the God of the universe who took the form of a doulos. But then he comes to this next portion, this next phrase, and he also says that he's an apostolos. And this was to represent the authority of, of the one who sent him. And he says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle is used in the technical sense here. Jesus Christ designated Paul as the authoritative messenger. And this letter doesn't represent some good advice or some general counsel that Paul was trying to share with Titus and the believers on the island, the churches on the island. It represents a binding authority that not only goes beyond the churches to whom Paul was writing in Titus, but to everyone in the church age that would follow. It's an authoritative letter. It's an urgent letter, and Jesus Christ designated Paul as an authoritative messenger. Apostolos. Um, it breaks down like this: Apo, which means "from," "stello." which means to send forth. And so it literally means one sent forth from or by another, often with a special commission to represent another and to accomplish his work. It can be a delegate, a commissioner, an ambassador sent out on a mission with orders or a commission with the authority of the one who sent him. So the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who sent the apostles. And we're actually going to see this a little bit more. During New Testament times, an apostle carried the broad meaning of One sent as a messenger or a delegate with instructions from a group or an individual, which in this case is Christ. In its broadest sense, apostle can also refer to all believers because every believer is sent into the world right as a witness for Christ. But the term is primarily reserved as specific and unique for the 13 men whom Christ personally chose and commissioned to authoritatively proclaim the gospel and also heal in a miraculous way. Their teachings also became the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20. It states this, and their authority extended beyond local bodies of believers to the entire believing world. And so what qualified Paul to be an apostle and these other men to be recognized as apostles? And do apostles exist today? The qualifications necessary for apostleship preclude contemporary Christians from filling the apostolic office. In order to be an apostle, a person had to meet these thr- three qualifications. And you're going to come across people in, in your witnessing and who will identify themselves with these, ter- with these terms. And so to ha- be armed and equipped with this is good information to have. An apostle first had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. An apostle had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ. And an apostle had to be able to confirm his mission and message with miraculous signs. And we see these three qualifying um, descriptions, really, in passages uh, throughout. And and we don't have the time now to um, look at all those scriptures, but I do want us just to have one for each one to hang our hats on. And the first, an apostle, had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And you can find this in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, which says this Jesus. Oh, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus Christ went in and out among us. Let me reread that. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus Christ went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until the day that he was, he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Great verse. Second point, an apostle had to be directly appointed by Jesus Christ. In Mark 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, And he, Jesus, appointed the twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. And then verse 15, And to have authority to cast out the demons. Okay? And then uh, thirdly, an apostle had to be able to confirm his mission and message with miraculous signs. Matthew 10 is a great passage to remember the the, the first four verses. We'll just read the first two, which say, which says this, Matthew 10:1 and 2, Jesus summoned his twelve and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, and then it goes on, and I don't need to read those for you, but it lists them each by name. And one commentator, he shares this, based on these qualifications alone, many continuationists agree that there are no apostles in the church today. And those unfamiliar with the term continuationists, it means simply that they're people who believe that the healing or the miraculous gifts have continued into the church age, which is different than a cessationist who believes that those miraculous gifts have ceased. And so that would be the position um, that that our doctrinal statement supports. Um, And so this is what Wayne Grudem, a continuationist, notes in systematic theology. It seems that no apostles were appointed after Paul, and certainly since no one today can meet the qualifications of having seen the risen Christ with his own eyes, there are no apostles today. Okay, And the only exception that gets brought up on a pretty regular basis is to Uh, The Apostle Paul, right, who um, even describes his unique encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ as an anomaly. And if you read 1 Corinthians uh, 15 verses 8 and 9, he saw himself as one of a kind and even refers to himself as the last and the least of the apostles. So, Well, our time is up and this is the messenger of Titus. And He has certainly been affirmed. And I hope our in-depth look at uh, looking what it means to be a doulos theos blessed you. And to close our time, I actually wanted to read a story that really hit home for me when I considered who I am in Christ. It's a powerful story and it's entitled I Am a Christian. And this is what it says. The young man said nothing else as he stood before the Roman governor, his life hanging in the balance. His accusers pressed him again, hoping to trip him up or force him to recant. But once more he answered with the same short phrase, I am a Christian. It was the middle of the second century during the reign of Emperor Marcus Aurelius Christianity was illegal and believers throughout the Roman Empire faced the threat of imprisonment, torture, or death. Persecution was especially intense in southern Europe where Sanctus, a deacon from Vienna, had been arrested and brought to trial. The young man was repeatedly told to renounce the faith he possessed or professed and possessed. But his resolve was undeterred. He simply said, I am a Christian. No matter what question he was asked, he always gave the same unchanging answer. According to the ancient church historian, Eusebius, Sanctus girded himself against his accusers with such firmness that he would not even tell his name or the nation or the city to which he belonged or whether he was a bond or free, but answered the Roman tongue to all their questions. In a Roman tongue, to all their questions, I am a Christian a Christian. When at last it became obvious that he would say nothing else, he was condemned to severe torture and public death in the amphitheater. On the day of his execution, he was forced to run the gauntlet, subjected to wild bees, and fastened to a chair of burning iron. Throughout all of it, his accusers kept trying to break him, convinced that his resistance would crack under the pain of torment. But as Eusebius recounted, quote, even Thus, they did not hear a word from Sanctus except the confession which he uttered from the beginning. His dying words told of an undying commitment. His rallying cry remained constant throughout his entire trial. I am a Christian. For Sanctus, his whole identity, including his name, citizenship, social status, was found in Jesus Christ. Hence, no better answer could be, could have been given to the questions that he was asked. He was a Christian and that designation defined everything about him. And I share this because as Christians, and that term again is only used how many times in the New Testament? Right? Three times? Really what he was saying is he was a doulos of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a Christian. And this week in your quiet time as you have an opportunity just to sit before the Lord and to meditate on that reality and your identity and who you are in this world and who God's called and we actually get to look at this that we were predestined for this very thing when we get to the motive of the letter and we study it next week. I am a Christian. I'm a Christian. Has a tremendous impact. Had a tremendous impact just even saying those words to my own heart in my own study time. Let us turn our eyes with great humility as adulas doulos Let us be sensitive to the sound of our Master's voice as we study His Word. Let us meditate and contemplate as we say those words, I am a Christian. God, help me to know and to cherish what that means. And next Sunday, we'll have the joy of looking at the motive for this unique letter when we study it again together. Well, we will have a response song after this, and I'm going to close our time in prayer. So we want to invite our worship team to come up after this. And... Um, We should have time to get it done. i was just double checking my phone because the next service is coming. Please join me as I pray. Gracious Father, we just want to praise you. It's fitting that we have an opportunity just to sing this song yet again. And we are so encouraged, so encouraged by... Um, The reality of how you led Paul to identify himself. And we pray, Father, that as we consider our own identity in you, that it would have an impact on our lives, the same way that Paul's identity impacted who he was and how he lived and his commitment to you. May the same be true of us, Father. May we um, cling to that identity that we have in Christ. May we cling to giving you glory through the testimony of how we identify ourselves to the pagan influence and the lost world that surrounds us. We pray that you'll help us to be faithful representatives, that you will encourage our hearts to... Rise to the occasion to give you glory for how you're at work in our lives. And Father, we look forward to seeing how this study continues to bless us. We pray that you'll go before us and help us to continue to keep our eyes in Titus and to dig deep and to understand what your word has for us. We thank you for what it provided for us this day. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.